We've just started a series called Steadfast Love, based on the books of Hosea and Jonah, the prophetic books. And so if you've got your Bible, please grab it. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 2. Um, and the prophet Hosea, you may not have been around last week, the prophet Hosea is writing 2,700 years ago, so in the 8th century BC. And he's writing in the context where a lot of the nation of Israel is embroiled in a fertility cult, basically. Um, what's happened historically in Israel's history, they have been worshippers of the one God, the, the maker of heaven and earth and everything in them, the God of the Exodus, the God of the temple. And they've always worshipped him and they've called him by his covenant name, the Lord or Yahweh or Jehovah. And they've been called into worshipping him ever since the days of Abraham. But more recently, in the time Hosea is writing, they have increasingly been turning aside to a series of local fertility cults, particularly one around a god called Baal, or sometimes pronounced Baal, B-A-A-L, and they've been worshipping him. He's like a sort of god with the head of a bull, and he's a fertility god. He's a god that they believe makes their crops grow and gives them good harvests and makes their flocks have young and all that. And they've also often accompanied their worship of Baal with the worship of Asherah, which is basically a, a female deity based around a phallic symbols and, and the like. So instead of worshipping the God of all things, the God of creation and temple and exodus, they are worshipping a God in the form of a bull and a God in the form of a phallic symbol and all sorts of other things. And to put it no more strongly than this. The God of Israel is not happy about this, right? The God of the Bible rebukes them in the strongest terms, and he is raising up prophets in this period of history to challenge Israel's idolatry and call Israel back to the worship of the one God. And what he does in Hosea's case, as we saw last week, is he calls Hosea to marry an unfaithful wife, and her name is Gomer, and that couple is intended to be like an acted parable of another couple, which is the marriage, if you like, between God and Israel. And Israel, like Gomer, is unfaithful and sleeps around. And God, like Hosea, is faithful and remains committed to his wife, even when she is uncommitted to him. And that's basically the setup of the book of Hosea. And today what we're going to do is read Hosea chapter 2, which is in many ways the poetic version of what we saw last week in prose. So last week we read Hosea 1 and 3, and it would be told in prose narrative. And in Hosea 2, this often happens in Scripture, you get a prose account, and then you get a poetry account as well, and they fit each other, and that's what's happening here. Uh, and it's the sort of passage, I think, that many of us will probably find offensive in a variety of ways. Some of that is just stylistic. The imagery is very graphic and the language is very you know, vivid and visceral and in places quite unpleasant. But some of the reasons why we might be offended, I think, are actually theological. There are things about this that we might find difficult in our understanding of God and what God has come to do. And it's really important that we understand why those things strike us that way, because this is the revealed word of God. Jesus quotes Hosea at least twice in the Gospels and says, this is God's word, right? But what happens is when we get offended, we learn something about ourselves and about our problems with the God of the Bible and where we might need to be challenged. And it's a helpful process for us to go to to consider what those are. And I think there's three things in particular in this passage which might trouble us or offend us. There's the description of sin, there's the reality of judgment, and there's the one-sidedness of grace. 
the description of sin, the reality of judgment, and the one-sidedness of grace. And as we go through the passage, hopefully we'll see what I mean by that. We're going to start reading Hosea chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she's not my wife, and I'm not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother's been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I'll go after my lovers who gave me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil, my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she can't find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she'll say, I'll go back to my husband as at first, for I was better off then than now. She hasn't acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it's ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket. Wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There, I will give her back her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. There, she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You'll no longer call me my Baal. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle. I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. This is the word of God. So it's a tricky passage. And the first thing that I think we might find offensive about it is the description of sin. It's very graphic, as a lot of the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, actually, in the Old Testament, are often very graphic about the grimness and the horror of sin. And Hosea's picture of sin or idolatry as adultery is particularly challenging. And we looked at this last week. And so if you hadn't heard last week's message and you think, okay, how does this work? This is a kind of weird image. It's what might be worth catching up on last week because it's important for the whole series we're in now. But some of the language is just very, very challenging in its description of sin. 
Verse two, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Very strong words to talk about. It's adultery, it's unfaithfulness. It's not just a mistake here and there. You know, the word sin in English can sometimes almost be like, oh, I just ate a bit too much chocolate. That's how we use it. But this is like, no, no, this is adultery. This is a breach of faith with someone. Verse five, their mother's been unfaithful and conceived them in disgrace. Sin is shameful and disgraceful in biblical thinking. Verse 10, so now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. Again, the word lewdness is a very strong word for sin, which we might be inclined to think of as quite a light thing, but the Bible's like, no, 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 this is a really strong language we need to show you how destructive sin is. Now, we might accept all that as a description of Israel's idolatry 27 centuries ago. We might say, oh, yeah, well, that's fine. It doesn't cost us very much to do that. So, oh, yeah, it does sound like they were really bad people. We might even accept it as a description of other people's sins now. We might say, yeah, that's, that's not a bad way of describing the sin of a mass murderer or a sexual predator or a corrupt official or policeman or something. You might say, yeah, okay, fair enough. That, that's a strong language like that is warranted for those sins, but not for mine. My sin doesn't, you can't use words like that of my kind of, my sins are much smaller than that. My sins are like, yeah, okay, I have a little bit of greed and maybe pride or lust. Yeah, who doesn't struggle with that? A bit of envy or gossip, does that really matter? Or slander, violence even? The way we distort the truth, the way we tell, say things in order to maximize other people's impression of us, even if it isn't really true. But we say, yeah, but who doesn't do that? That's a small sin. I'm Use language like Hosea's for big sins if you must, but not for mine. The reality is that we don't tend to think of our sins as genuinely adulterous or idolatrous or faithless or disgraceful or lewd or evil. We just don't use words like that to describe our own motives. Because what tends to happen is we tend to judge our own sin by our intentions, but we judge other people's sin by their consequences. Have you noticed that? So when you're assessing what you did, you're quite likely, and so am I, you're quite likely to judge what you meant to do. When you're judging what someone else did, you're more likely to judge what resulted from it. I find this all the time with my boys in the garden. I play football in the garden all the time with the neighbours. We've got a number of young boys, same kind of age, between seven and 14 kind of thing. They're always playing. And my, my sons are both at ages where they will fall to the ground when they're, whenever they're tackled and just go, ref, ref, and look to me as if I'm somehow going to be the referee in this moment. And I usually haven't even seen what's happened. But what I've noticed is that the boys will fall to the ground and shout for a foul if they get hurt, no matter what the other person was trying to do. But if they're accused of doing a foul, they will always say, but I didn't mean to, I wasn't trying to. They are judging their, their play by what they intended, but they judge other people's play by the results. And I think we all do that to some degree with sin. We tend to go easier on ourselves, many, much of the time, not everybody, but much of the time, we go easier on ourselves than we do on other people because we know what we meant to do. So we find it hard to believe that our sinful thoughts and actions are actually evil or lewd or abominable or idolatrous. And God says they really are. They really are. Jesus spent a lot of his ministry confronting people who didn't think their sin was that bad and calling them snakes, vipers, whitewashed graves and many, many other things to make the point. A thousand years ago, 
the Archbishop of Canterbury in this country was a man called St. Anselm, and he wrote one of the great sentences in church history. To, in, it was a form of a dialogue. He wrote a book called Why Did God Become Man? And he's having a dialogue with a slightly dim-witted character called Bozo, which is, if you've heard the word Bozo used that way, that's where it comes from. Um, and Bozo's trying to understand, but why does God need to become human to save us? And Anselm has this lovely line where he says, you have not yet considered the gravity of sin. You don't understand why God became flesh in Christ because you haven't really reckoned with the seriousness of sin. And in fact, one of the telltale signs of Christian maturity is that you grow to hate your sin more than other people's sin. It's actually quite good for relationships as well. If you're, if you're married, you're a parent, you're a friend, it helps if you think less of your own sin than you do of someone else's. It's always difficult if you think, well, my friend, my child, my wife, whoever it is, sins worse than I do. It's quite hard to start from that foundation. Whereas if you think, actually, I'm really aware of my sin more than theirs, that really helps. So we might read a passage like Hosea 2 and be offended by its description of sin. And I think in some ways that's intentional on Hosea's part. It's like throwing a cup of, cup of cold water in the face of somebody and go, hey, wake up. You need to see how bad this is. You're trivializing, some, some of us are tempted to trivialize our sin in contrast with other people's. And Hosea's trying to say to us, no, 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 sin is lewd, it's abominable, it's faithless, it's adultery, it's vile. Run from it as fast as you can. So we might be offended by the description of sin. I might also be offended by the reality of judgments. And I think many of us are, particularly in this generation. And Hosea again expresses this very vividly. Verse three, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I'll make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. Verse six, I'll block her path with thorn bushes. I'll wall her in so she can't find her way. Verse 12, I'll ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were pay from her lovers. Verse 13, I'll punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. It's really direct judgment language. I will do this and she will not like it. And for some of us, the challenge when we read texts like that is, okay, so how do I square that sort of language with the Jesus we find in the Gospels? That we've just been reading about in the I Am series we've just done in John. How do I square Jesus with this sort of picture? And actually, of course, if you go back to our I Am series, you'll find that many of those passages are filled with very strong language about sin in just the same kind of way. And you'll see that Jesus is actually saying things like, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any life in you. Or anyone who sins is a slave to sin, including you. Or you belong to your father, the devil. Or any branch that doesn't bear fruit is thrown into the fire and burned. So actually Jesus does speak like this a lot of the time, even in the gospels. But for some of us, the problem goes deeper even than that. The problem, we'd say, oh no, I, I get it. There's a bit of that in Jesus. There's a bit of it in Isaiah. But my problem is I genuinely cannot fathom how that kind of judgment language is compatible with the love of God. If God is abounding in steadfast love, why is he talking like this? That's the challenge for some of us. So imagine that you're a doctor giving someone cancer treatment and they... This is happening to a friend of mine at the moment. She's having all these uh, scans. It's just horrible, isn't it? And you, it's maybe happening to some of you. And what happens is, you know, you go through and you get the CT scan and, and all the other kind of scans there might be. And you go into one of these machines like you can see on the screen. And, and you, the, you're the doctor. You see the readings. And then you sit down with the patient and you tell them what it is. And you say, you have a growth that's about this size. And this is where it is. And this is what we've got to do about it. 
But imagine that they at that point say, you know what, that treatment sounds really inconvenient and invasive and painful. I've got a lot on in my life. That's going to slow me down for weeks on end. I'm just not really up for it. I certainly don't want chemo. I'm not sure I want that treatment either. That shadow on the diagram really doesn't look that bad. I'm sure it's nothing to worry about. Let's just leave it for now, shall we? What's the most loving response for you as a doctor to that person? And I suggest that the most loving response is not to say, yeah, it's fine. The loving response, a loving doctor at that point would say, I know it only looks like a little shadow to you, but believe me, that thing is malignant and it's dangerous and it will kill you if you don't get it out. It has the potential to destroy your life and therefore, by the grace of God, we are going to find a way of removing it from you and it will take some time to heal. But it's vital that you do, literally vital that you do, because if you don't, it will destroy you. And in the end, to love and affirm the person requires judging and destroying the cancer. That's how you love the person, is you have to root out and fight against and destroy the thing that's going to kill them. And the reverse is also true, by the way. If you say, oh, that cancer's not that bad. I love that cancer. I'm going to affirm the cancer in all its cancerousness. You end up destroying the person. You actually have to choose. Am I going to love the person or am I going to love the, am I going to love the thing that is destroying the person? And you can obviously see where I'm going with this. Sin is a cancer on the human soul. We need God in his word and in prophets just like Hosea, even when they're hard to read, we need God to show us the consequences of allowing sin to grow unchecked in our lives, a malignant darkness that will eventually destroy us if we don't get rid of the sin. And we need judgment passages like this, as offensive as they may be, we need them like we need CT scans to run their eye over our whole lives and say, do any of this apply to you? Is there any shadows there that we just need to expose them? You're not going to go to hell for this. We just need to reveal what's there so we can get it out and clarify the consequences and enable you and me to take drastic action if we need to, to get rid of it. So we may be offended by the description of sin and we may be offended by the reality of judgment and both of those are in God's good design intended for us to help us to grow ultimately. But lastly, we may find ourselves offended and many people are by the one-sidedness of grace. And this is the good news. But actually many people find this offensive as well because we all like to think, I think we do anyway, that we have qualities or achievements which somehow entitle us to stand before God on our own merits. We'd all like somewhere, I think everybody who's ever lived has got something where they'd say, that's the thing that I've done that probably gives, that qualifies me. It might be a, a, an achievement you have, something in your past, it might be a character, a virtue you have, it might be your, your piety, your prayer life, your charity, your inclusiveness, your generosity, it could be any number of things. But we, we've probably all got something like that, or very nearly all of us have. And so it can be quite a shock when we encounter the one-sidedness of grace. The idea that the, the grace of God, the way that God saves us, is actually all down to him and not down to things that he's seen in us that are really lovely, but something that he's got in himself and wants to give to us. So look at verses 14 to 23, just a few examples. God speaking here. I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. 
I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of trouble a door of hope. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. I will make a covenant for them. I will betroth you to me forever in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will show love to the one who I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they'll say, you're my God. Over and over and over again, God's saying, I will do this, right? Here's the problem, here's sin, here's the judgment. Now, what's gonna happen about it? Is that you are gonna do this, this, and this to get yourself out of it? No, it's that I will do these things. The storyline of Hosea couldn't make it clearer. Israel is not being restored and forgiven because she has cleaned herself up and pulled herself together. And neither are you, neither am I. She is still in this story an adulterous, idolatrous mess. No, Israel is not being restored because of Israel. Israel is being restored because of God, because God is abounding in steadfast love and mercy and grace. And so he says, I'm gonna be the one who allures you and entices you and speaks tenderly to you and draws you out and removes your false gods and makes a new covenant and betrothes you to me in marriage and shows love to you and calls you my people. I'm gonna do it, says God. Not you, you can't, but I will. And we find that hard to accept sometimes. We find it actually even offensive. We want to bring something to the party. We want to say, hey, it's just, here's just something. I just brought something. No one wants to turn up empty handed and say, oh, it's just a little thing, but I brought this. I know, God, you've done 80 or maybe 90, 95% of it, but here's my 5%. That's what we want to do. We want to contribute. Some works, maybe a turnaround in this area of our lives. Some, a bit of law keeping here maybe circumcision in the Old Testament or campaigning for justice or we've just got something we've done, all of which might be good, but we want to come and say, God, I've got this. I know you've done all of that in Jesus, but I've got that. So, so we're kind of square. So we find the one-sidedness of grace offensive sometimes because the Bible doesn't talk like that at all. And it is at the heart of the message of Hosea and at the heart of the gospel that grace ultimately is a one-sided thing that God initiates and does something when we've done nothing. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what thing must I do to inherit eternal life? The prodigal son comes back from a foreign country and he says, father, I've sinned. Let me work for you as one of your hired servants. The workers in the vineyard, do you know that? Remember that story? They all want everyone to get wages based on how much work they did. And they get very angry when they find that the owner of the vineyard is just giving wages out to anybody as a gift because they don't want it to be of grace. They want it to be of works. And Jesus Christ says, no, that's not how the kingdom works. You have nothing that I need. I have everything that you need. We're not equals here. In fact, the only thing that we human beings contribute to our salvation is our sin that means we need to be saved from it. One of my favorite hymns, beautiful hymn called Rock of Ages, written by a man 250 years ago called Augustus Toplady. And he wrote writes several beautiful verses about Jesus as the rock of ages. Uh, one, of these, one of the verses goes like this. It says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Nothing in my hands I bring. I haven't got anything. What could I possibly bring that God would need in order to save me? And so Hosea, in this chapter, Hosea is offensive in a way because the gospel is offensive. 
It displays the grimness of sin, the reality of judgment, and the one-sidedness of grace. We are more sinful than we dared fear and more loved than we dared hope. The Apostle Peter learned that in a very public way and it would be a well-known story that he realised the depths of his own sin in a horrible way by denying Christ three times. And then towards the end of his life, he's writing a letter, which we actually studied a year or so ago in the church, uh, called 1 Peter, and writing a letter to disciples in Asia, he quotes Hosea, this chapter of Hosea, Hosea chapter 2, as the climax to his summary of the gospel. He's been talking about how what Jesus has done, the, the, the cornerstone that has meant that we're not going to be put to shame. He said that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You've been called that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And then he says this as the climax. Once, quoting Hosea 2, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the gospel. It's offensive, but it's very, very good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and we thank you for this extraordinary gospel that both identifies the sin we have and the judgment that's coming, but then exposes the glorious reality that you have done all that is needed to save us from it. And that even though, though we might try, there is nothing we can do to rescue ourselves, but we can simply trust that you, your cross, your blood, avail for us. Lord, we are so grateful and we pray that you would move among us now as we worship and pray to transform our lives into the likeness of Jesus and enable us to live out of, not in order to get, the forgiveness and kindness of God that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.